Hello, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate spoiler special on Dreamgirls. Now, remember, the spoiler special is a feature wherein we give away the secrets of a movie. So if you haven't seen Dreamgirls and, you know, you, you, wanna, you don't want to know how it all turns out, then, uh, then don't listen. Although I don't know how much there is to spoil in a movie as, as feel-good and upbeat as this one. Uh, joining me is Jody Rosen, who's our music critic at Slate. Hi, Jody. Hi, Dana. And uh, we had the pleasure of seeing Dreamgirls together the other day. So first off, um, what's your reaction to the movie overall? Enjoy, not enjoy, recommend, not? Enjoy, yes. Recommend, definitely. Um, wasn't a great movie, um, I'd say, but uh, thoroughly entertaining. I guess my biggest problem with the movie was the, was the music itself. It was, it was a little problematic to have a musical with bad music, uh, although I guess that's sort of the norm on Broadway these days. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you more about. In your piece on the movie on Slate, which wasn't exactly a review or even a music review, but really just a reflection on this one central song, you very quickly sort of at the beginning get it over with just saying the score is terrible. And I wanted you to spend a little bit of time expanding on that, you know, as as a music critic. I mean, can you can you get into how the score doesn't work? Uh, yeah, I can try. Um, I mean, first of all, there's the issue, which I think you mentioned in your review, of there not being any hooks. That is to say that none of the songs are particularly catchy or memorable. You don't come away from the movie humming anything really not even the big song in the middle you're just kind of you know jennifer hudson's performance of and i'm telling you i'm not going just kind of you know blows your mind but it's not exactly something doesn't leave you with a with a memorable tune that's certainly the case of all the rest of the songs which are which are just you know kind of melt into a, a blur so I, how is the movie so as effective as it is i mean it's interesting i definitely agree with you that you know there's not a, a toe-tapping hook in there and yet Several of the songs are effective, emotionally effective, especially this big central, um, you know, ballad. Would you call it a ballad? I don't know. You're the music critic, not me. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely call that a ballad. I mean, that song is effective for some of the reasons I, you know, outline in my piece. But, you know, most most of all, just because of the kind of majesty of the performance. I mean, Jennifer Hudson is, um, is an you know, incredible singer with God knows how many octaves in her vocal range and, um, you know, delivers this anguished but ultimately sort of triumphant song with incredible virtuosity, you know what I mean? It's just kind of, it's just, it's this like athletic feat that you can't help but be awed by. So the performance kind of exceeds the song itself. Exactly, and that's the case also in, um, towards the end of the movie, there's a, it's funny, in, in the film Beyonce, Knowles has to play this Diana Ross character, and of course Diana Ross famously couldn't really sing and didn't have a particularly characterful voice and that's not at all the case with Beyonce she's a great singer and her voice is you know full of power and character and so she has she's sort of you know restraining herself the whole time you can kind of see her straining when she's singing she's having to sing in this bland fashion the entire movie but at at the end she finally gets to cut loose and this incidentally was a song that was added that wasn't in the original Broadway score and I'm wondering whether you know Beyonce through some sort of fit or I mean you know I just can only imagine that she she demanded that there be a moment she, in the get song a diva where she moment actually too. gets a diva moment too and you know it's sort of her answer to the Jennifer Hudson moment and you know sure sure enough it, it's it's just you know in technical terms it's a mind-blowing performance it's not qu- it's not as emotionally engaging by any means as the Jennifer Hudson performance but I mean to go back to your first question the reason one of the reasons I think the film works or at least is just so entertaining is as you say it's very kind of luscious and and lavish um, and particularly from the kind of you know art direction, costume, set design perspective. It's just, you know, this wonderful evocation of 20 years of kind of pop culture and black music, which is the music itself is completely off. It's all sort of like vaguely cruise ship, pappy pop music that doesn't really 
come close to approximating anything that sounds like Motown. You were saying it doesn't even work as a pastiche of Motown. It doesn't sound like good fake Motown. No, in fact, the, the, the irony is that they get the art direction and the hairstyles and the clothing so incredibly right. It's like, you know, perfect period pieces. But the music, which is, after all, the thing they really had to pay attention to, is just off. Uh, and one thing that really struck me funny is, you know, the irony that uh, thematically the, 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 the movie is about kind of just opposing authentic black music against kind of whitened, watered-down versions of black music. You know, of course, championing the real thing, which is embodied in Effie White, Jennifer Hudson's character. But the irony is that they're trying to do this with this music which is just written by a bunch of, you know, kind of honky Broadway songwriters who just don't know how to write an even a half-decent Motown pastiche. So... Uh, there's a sort of there's a sort of, sort of problem there. Yeah, we, well, you talked about this a little bit in your review, but we could maybe explore Jennifer Hudson's performance a little bit more in detail to talk about the ra- the question of race and authenticity in the movie. I mean, obviously, the whole movie revolves around this dichotomy, this distinction that it draws between Beyonce's character and Jennifer Hudson's character, right? One of them being the sort of whitened, well, lighter-skinned, literally, skinnier, right? Sort mm-hmm. of more marketably beautiful and also uh, less soulful singer. And, uh, you know, you and I were both talking about this kind of archetype that Jennifer Hudson embodies, which is essentially the big, fat, black woman who belts bluesy songs and um, and how that's always sort of held up as the icon of true American music. And so this movie is touching some very deep archetypal chords, even as it, you know, sort of uh, turns all the music into bland mush that's indistinguishable. Right. Yeah. No, it's very funny. I mean, that's it's interesting to me that this movie about Motown it takes such a cynical view of Motown. You know, the the Jamie Foxx character, who I think is Curtis something Jr. Curtis Taylor? Curtis Taylor Jr. is, you know, explicitly modeled on Barry Gordy Jr., the founder mogul of Motown, who is, from all reports, a slightly malevolent figure, and certainly Jamie Foxx's character is like that. But, you know, Motown embodied by Beyonce's character, Dina Jones, and the music of the dreams, that is, the Supremes, is really dismissed and kind of scorned in this in this movie as pap. And there's a problem there because, of course, Motown's great. Even the stuff, the most machine produced of the Motown stuff was just fantastic. So those kind of ideas about authenticity uh, ring a little false if you if you are familiar with, you know, the Motown songbook. I mean, either, there's that moment in the film where they have this kind of Jackson 5-like band up on stage. And, you're, and, of course, it's a terrible version of a Jackson 5 song, but you're reminded, reminded of those Jackson 5 hits like I Want You Back, which are just so mind-blowingly good and soulful that, you know, the distinctions that the movie's trying to make just don't really ring true, at least historically. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, I guess, I guess the sort of um, uh, the journey of self-discovery that the women embark on all ends with them throwing aside Curtis Taylor Jr., hence Motown. Right. Right. Um, you know, on the other hand, every... As I say, like you know, the art direction is so sumptuous, and and the ca- and the costumes are so great that it's it's all very seductive and enchanting. You know what and I mean? And the joy of performance is sort of stressed again and again. You know, I mean, performance is presented as almost pure pleasure in this movie. There's very few scenes where anyone performs and doesn't seem to be enjoying it and wanting to perform and wanting to give everything to the audience, whether it's Eddie Murphy doing his James Brown imitation yeah. or, you know, the girls up on stage doing their snaps. I mean, there's, it's not one of those backstage musicals that, that has people sort of pushed on stage, you know, fearing to go on or not ready to go on. Right. It's no. a very pro performance. Movie. Right. One thing that I thought was very, very effective and kind of, you know, historically resonant was one of the first Dreams songs that becomes sort of a minor hit on R&B radio. They show, you know, rocketing to the top of the pop charts in a version by 
you know, a kind of Beach Boys-esque or even cheesier, right. you know, white band. I forget the, the title of the song, but there's this Cadillac song. Car. Cadillac Car, that's right. Well done, Dana. <laughs> My goodness, you've been doing your homework. But anyway, yeah, so there's... Don't a, ask me to hum it for you, though. It wasn't yeah, no, catchy enough. Can't do that. But anyway, in any case, and that, you know, of course rings true because th- that happened... Time and time again, there were these songs that were, you know, R&B hits that nobody heard. Yeah, I don't know if the movie presented that authentically or not, but it was presented as if the the Dreamettes had no idea that the song would be stolen, that somebody had just simply heard it, figured out the chords, and and started playing it themselves. Right. I mean, I, I thought it was one of the more effective comic moments, though, the kind of the quick cut to that song. To the uber-white presentation. Yeah, yeah. And one of the few moments that, that a white person figures significantly in the movie at all. I mean, something I liked about this movie is that it really was about a world of, of black business, you know, the, the black music business, and except for a brief cameo by John Lithgow as a movie producer, there really right, weren't with, any with white characters. terrifying hair, the by the way, John Lithgow with, with, <laughs> with <laughs> a bald-headed but long-haired... Terrible down. period, 70s yeah. hair. So, because as you say in your, in your piece, essentially the movie is 125 minutes of padding around this one sort of spectacular breakout song by Jennifer Hudson. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Jennifer Hudson and uh, what you think this movie's going to do for her, um, you know, where she comes from, why she's kind of a, a unique figure in this film. You know, a little bit about her background. Of course, she was, she's from Chicago, and I think she was a cruise ship entertainer, which is ironic given the fact that there was there was a lot of cruise ship style music. And dream, yeah, she sang on Disney growth. Cruises, right? Yeah, right. She sang on Disney Cruises, and I think she appeared in Big River the musical, you know, in a local production in Chicago. And, of course, um, you know, America first got to know her uh, in season three of American Idol when she was, I think, the third runner-up. And she was, you know, a tremendous singer with this, you know, huge booming voice that you hear in Dreamgirls. And her dismissal from the show, you know, when she was voted off by the viewing public, uh, was a bit of a shocker. And at the time, Elton John, who was, I guess, one of the guest judges on the show or something, decried this as racist. But in any case, so Jennifer Hudson's you know, autobiography mirrors in some respect Effie White's story because, of course, Effie is you know, kicked out of the, the dreams, the band that she once led as the lead singer because she doesn't have the look. So in that way, you know, the movie's very kind of like autobiographically resonant, and I think that you know, adds to the sort of mystique of Jennifer Hudson. And I can't imagine this film won't give her career a huge kickstart. Um, I had one more question as long as we're talking about movie musicals. Mm-hmm. Do you really think that Jennifer Hudson's performance tops Judy Garland's performance of uh, The Man That Got Away and The Star Is Born, which is the comparison we were making, this sort of very emotional set piece chunk in the middle of a musical? You know, I kind of do. It may... I'm outraged. I'm leaving the <laughs> studio. <laughs> well, Dana, why don't you talk about that? Well, I mean, I, I, I'd love to see you defend your choice. I just feel like, I mean, maybe it's just because I've seen it so many times, but Star is Born is, I think, one of the great movie musicals and one of the great a movie musical that manages to weave drama in in a really convincing way where you don't sort of have an artificial break of people bursting into song and somehow the mood is just, is just very consistent and it's a very powerful movie for me still. And I just think that that's one of the great filmed vocal performances of all time. And much as I love Jennifer Hudson's performance in this movie, I guess I just feel like... Judy Garland has an, an iconic power that still hasn't been surpassed by a, a diva to me. You know, no, that's probably that's probably true. I guess I. It's also a better song. That's my one other defense. Well, is that the man that got away is a fantastic song. It's definitely a better song. Um, no question about that. I think you know Jennifer Hudson. The whole you know, I guess as a I have to admit it, American Idol viewer, I'm caught up in the whole cult of personality around Jennifer Hudson and in kind of her story. So I'm bringing that 
to the scene. I'm probably bringing my own, you know, great sympathy for Judy Garland's life story onto the onto my my preference for her performance too. Yeah, but but I think that the two are definitely comparable, even even in their sort of masochistic, you know, overtones. They're both songs about you know women just sort of laying it out there, you know, just I've, I'm utterly lost, and you know, here's my final plea. Right, which, as I say in my article, is you know that kind of is the diva tradition, period. You know, uh, in popular music, you, you hear that in ADPF, you hear it in in Billie Holiday, and you know, you hear it in Aretha Franklin, the whole kind of like soul and post-soul ballad singing tradition. It's always, the woman is always in this, you know, abject state. And as I was saying, in this movie, it has one extra little element too, which is that it's almost as if Jennifer Hudson's abject plea for love is a plea to the audience itself. I mean, since part of what she's begging for is to get her singing job back, Mm -hmm. you know, and since we know her whole history of American Idol and being kicked off and so forth, to hear her sort of (laughs) screaming, you must love me, or what is it, you're going to love me, over and over, also seems almost as if it's directed at us, the audience, you know, and we can't resist that plea. So overall, over the holidays, we're sending people to Dreamgirls, are we? Yeah, please. Thanks a lot for uh, for going to the movie with me and for um, for coming in to talk about it. I had fun, Dana. For Slate.com, this is Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.